Welcome to Trade Matters, a podcast of the Clayton Yeider Institute of International Trade and Finance at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Jill O'Donnell. Our guest today is Andrea Durkin, Editor-in-Chief of Trade Vistas, founder of Sparkplug LLC, and Adjunct Professor of Trade Policy at Georgetown University's Master of Science in Foreign Service program. Andrea, thanks so much for joining us on Trade Matters today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. So let's start by talking a little bit about your background. You're a, a veteran U.S. trade negotiator and editor-in-chief of an excellent trade policy website called Trade Vistas. And you've also taught trade policy at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service for a number of years. And I have to note that you were the instructor of a very popular trade negotiation simulation course that we offered here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln last year. So you've got a really deep well of experience to draw upon to talk with us today about trade. So tell us just a little bit more about your background and experience as a trade negotiator. I'm sure. First, you're very kind. Um, Let me say this off the top. I was so grateful to be able to teach the trade negotiation simulation at Nebraska. The students, and you've heard me say this before, they were so incredibly enthusiastic and they did great in the negotiation. And in general, I just think exposing students to the opportunity to practice these kinds of skills and to learn experientially is not just something that can help them understand the dynamics of trade negotiations, but offers them the kind of skills that they can apply really anywhere in life, you know, listening well to others and exercising creativity to find solutions. So thank you for that opportunity off the top. Um, as for my my own career, I, frankly, I just feel very fortunate. I became interested in trade negotiations growing up in Detroit at a time when the auto industry felt very threatened by competition from Japanese producers. This was in the 1980s and at the same time felt frozen out of Japan's market. And so this was, for me, headline news in my local papers and negotiations were very active. And they were led by a strong female figure, Carla Hills, whom I'm sure you've You've heard she's still an idol of mine, um, has this wonderful, deep voice and and very commanding presence. And it really it captivated me and I wanted to be part of it. So I was interested in representing the U.S. government on behalf of the American people and um, interested in 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 the benefits of trade negotiations for American industries. So I ended up spending in the first part of my career, 10 government, 10 years in the U.S. government with Commerce Department. Um, and with the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative. And um, I wanted exposure to different types of negotiations. Uh, So I sought out those kinds of experiences and was lucky to be part of multilateral negotiations in the United Nations in New York at the WTO in Geneva. Um, APEC was an opportunity to do um, plurilateral regional negotiations. And I was also part of teams that negotiated auto commitments. Um, when Taiwan acceded to the WTO, we did an MOU with Korea. Um, and what I consider to be that really the highlight and most fun in my negotiating career was to be part of negotiations with Central America. So I, I was able to work with counterparts in different regions of the world, different industries, um, different topics from environment to biotech to intellectual property. And um, to work under the direction of, of negotiators that I admired and learned from. And that's that's really how you become better at this. So that's really interesting that the trade issues faced by the auto industry really captured your attention when you were growing up in Detroit. And I think something similar is happening today where trade policy headlines, in particular with respect to agriculture, are capturing a lot of attention among you know the college students here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And you've seen that too. So we will get into more of those issues um, in a moment. I'd like to 
transition to talking about the U.S.-China phase one deal that was um, announced and, and signed some weeks ago, signed on January 15th. Um, but before we dive into that and, and also into an interesting piece that you wrote um, analyzing that phase one deal, let's just remind our listeners how we got to this point where we arrived at a phase one deal. Can you just briefly touch on a couple of the longstanding issues that have been at the heart of this long running dispute? Yeah, I'm not sure there's any way to briefly do it, but <laughs> right, <laughs> um, there's so many issues at play. And there's, I, you know, when I talk about this, I try to distinguish between the issues that are at the core of the Section 301 investigation that the administration launched in, in 2017, which is really focused on intellectual property and, and technology transfer. Um, but there's really a wider set of issues that encompass longstanding concerns about, about the fundamentally about the way China developed its economy um, and the way that China continues to support state-owned enterprises and also state-directed champions. So recall that it, it wasn't that long ago that China went from being a net importer to a dominant global supplier of critical intermediary goods, manufactured goods, primarily glass, paper, steel, auto, auto parts, um, and became a leading producer and a dominant exporter of those products. And it, it, it happened in large part because there was government financing, backing and fueling investments in capital intensive manufacturing industries. And when that happens, you, you induce overproduction and you can create a glut. It, 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 it may have been that so much of that production early on was intended for the domestic market, but with overproduction, the, the production's got to go somewhere. And it, it goes into global markets. It creates a glut of supply um, when the supply outstrips demand in the in the Chinese market. And when you get an influx of, of large volumes of commodities in the global market, you set into motion a downward spiral in, in prices and ultimately in profitability, impacting producers in other countries. And this is what is really at the heart of the complaints from the U.S. steel industry, for example, but, but many other industries as well. So... That leads us, the subsidies, right, in the form, in different forms that it took, whether it was low-cost loans or artificially cheap raw materials like energy and land, um, it also took the form of funds for research and development, funds for technology acquisition, and, and here we come to kind of the core of the present-day concerns, which is this race for technological supremacy. Um, so you've got this backdrop, right, of... of Longstanding um, complaints across many different industries that kind of culminates in um, the Section 301 investigation that really focuses on on these core issues surrounding technology transfer. But it's all it's all intertwined. Um, and if you look at the the White House report that was issued in June of, of 2018, I, I really recommend that as as short reading for people. It's only 35 pages versus USTR's 200 page report. Um, it outlines a wide array of um, of complaints about the way that the Chinese government has um, placed restrictions on market access for not just American but foreign companies, and and it, it includes procurement restrictions and um, a, a whole host of licensing requirements, approval restrictions, etc. Um, and so, so you can see that there's this landscape of concerns um, that that feeds into ultimately into this 301 investigation report, even though that that report is is sort of narrowly drawn. So that's uh, as you said, it's tough to summarize all of this in a, in a brief fashion. But I think you did a great job setting us up to to kind of understand this phase one deal and why it is just phase one. 
So I'd like to mention now the article that you wrote on the tradevistas.org website that you edit. Um, and the article was called, Is It Just a Phase? Redesigning Trade Deals in the Age of Trump. And starting out uh, with two points you made there, um, you indicated that the partial nature of the U.S.-China phase one deal may have been inevitable. And you also indicated that the approach to this deal um, and it being partial in nature might also herald a change in the overall U.S. approach to trade agreements, even with other trading partners going forward. So on the first point, um, I'd like to quote from your article. You wrote, quote, China's offenses cannot be pinpointed to one set of laws, regulations, or practices. And so the complex wiring of China's national approach cannot be untangled or rewired in one pass, in one agreement, even if China shared that goal. An agreement this ambitious would have to be built in phases, unquote. So just unpack that a little bit for us. I think that's a really interesting point. Why is it not possible to fix everything in one deal with China? Yeah, I mean, again, I go back to this um, this sort of helpful 2018 report. It, it outlines 30 different ways, 30 different ways and in broad brushstrokes ways that the Chinese government has has really embedded restrictions on foreign access into um, their market, into its economic system. Um, and it, it, it includes such a wide array of things from physical and cyber-based theft of commercial intellectual property, regulatory requirements that um, require companies to, to give competitive information as part of the approvals processes, um, requiring foreign patent or technology holders to accept below market royalty rates for their intellectual property, um, regulatory requirements that would expose competitive assets in exchange for the opportunity to participate in China's market. And it even goes into um, things that they call China's outgoing strategy, which is um, uh, state actors that are looking for open source science and, and technology discoveries in American institutions and investing in, in research institutions in the United States. And I say in a, in a different article, it sounds all very sinister, right? But it, the, the reason that I say it's so difficult to unwind all of these things is that they're articulated in many different places. It's not that we're um, drawing these conclusions on our own. The Chinese government actually states them out loud and on paper in national strategies made in China 2025 or um, China's national program for science and technology development, you know, five-year plans and the administrative guidance that's issued um, to agencies at the central, provincial and local levels to execute you know, these goals and these plans. And so when you think about the extent um, of the the designs, the, the goals um, that are laid out in these various strategies, it would seem to me sort of obvious that it's next to impossible at one stroke in one agreement to solve um, concerns that we might have with these deeply embedded practices that, as I said, are implemented at different levels of, of government in China. So because that, that is so complex to work through and solve or, or better manage some of these long-running issues, um, you wrote in your article, quote, this administration has departed from the standard free, free trade agreement template, unquote. So it, it sounds to me like from what you're saying that it, it simply wouldn't have been possible to deal with everything at once. And so we get this phase one deal. And you also suggested that perhaps the, the administration might take such a phased approach um, with respect to other trade negotiations that may be forthcoming with, for example, India, the UK, perhaps the European Union. 
So two questions for you here. One is, was getting something better than getting nothing in this case of the U.S.-China phase one deal? And then just more broadly speaking, what do you think that approach tells us about what we can look for um, in future trade agreement negotiations the U.S. may undertake with other partners? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel kind of fortunate right now because I'm I'm apolitical. I'm not working for a company. I'm not a lobbyist. I'm not any of those things. And so I consider myself kind of a social scientist at this point. So I can, <laughs> you know, step back and look at these things with some, you know, amount of curiosity and, and openness. And I, I think that this administration has been just plainly pragmatic. Um, and so there, there, there are short-term issues here. How do you deal with the issues at hand and what you want to achieve? And then there's sort of a broader um, broader set of issues about what, whether this portends the di- direction of future trade negotiations or not. Um, so there, there are different schools of thought about staging, first of all. Um, it's, it's true that in many cases, if you leave, I mean, as it is in life, right, if you leave the so-called harder things to negotiate until later, um, you may never get there. You know, you may use up your leverage, you may lose momentum. Of course, our politics are subject to change as they are in many other places other than China. Um, Our president may change. And so, you know, you risk, there's some risk in not holding out for a full package if you think you've got maximum leverage. And, and, you know, we, we had ratcheted tariffs up so high that one could argue that was sort of maximum leverage. But on the other hand, if you look at this deal, it's quite extraordinary, particularly with China, that it's it's one-sided. It's written in a way to try to balance out the commitments. You know, the U.S. affirms that it already does certain things. But in reality, when you look at the totality of this agreement, it's China that's doing all the doing, right? It, they're taking all the commitments. It's a fairly one-sided deal in that regard. Um, and you could argue that in terms of China's politics, that because of that incremental may simply be more feasible. Um, the other facet to this is that, that I think China watchers rightly have a healthy dose of skepticism about how China will implement these commitments. And in one sense, I think this is an opportunity to focus, um, since there is still leverage, remember there are still tariffs hanging over China's head and our heads, um, to to focus on how and and whether China will will implement what's on the table in front of them, um, and if you gave them too much, it's almost setting it up for failure. Um, so I think there's some merit in this case in in departing and taking a, a kind of phased incremental approach. Um, and I mean, the format of this agreement is different from a regular FTA, a traditional FTA, um, one that conforms to the expectations of. Uh, a traditional market access driven FTA under WTO agreements would cover substantially all trade between the parties. Um, and our agreements, U.S. agreements to date, we don't have that many bilateral agreements, but they are all soup to nuts agreements covering tariffs, customs, rules of origin, government procurement, services, investment, IP, digital trade and more. And, and here what you've got is a partial deal that's um, narrowly focused However, it's it's so unique in that it really is our first major bilateral deal with China. And absent the ability to do what I've just described in the form of a sort of traditional comprehensive deal, this seems to be a very pragmatic way to try to make progress. Now, what it portends for other agreements, um, it's unclear, but, you know, the agreement with Japan came before this, and, and that was billed as a phased deal, whether we get to market access on um, issues beyond digital trade and, and agriculture remains to be seen. 
Um, but that that one is a little bit more of an interesting example because it's it's not China. We actually did we actually did cover a wide array, a full complement of issues with Japan in the TPP. So um, that I think says more about the administration's approach even than China does, which is that they seem to have a preference to do what they want to get done, right? Focus on the priority issues and not worry about um, trying to to get the sun and the moon and the stars. And, and that's been our traditional approach. So I just query whether this is sort of the direction that we're going because in many ways, negotiating with major trading partners where you have such a complex relationship, it just may not be feasible, as we've seen with Europe, we've tried to do this for many years, to, to get it done. So you mentioned that this is really our first, our being the United States, our first major bilateral deal with China. And at the same time, as you pointed out in your Trade Vistas article, you mentioned that the deal that we signed with China quote, envisions reforms to China's laws, regulations, and policies as they apply to any foreign company operating in China, not just the American ones, end quote. So could this be a case of of unilateral pressure brought to bear on China by the United States actually resulting in a a win for um, other trading partners, other allies, other countries around the world that also trade with China. Is there a case to be made for unilateral pressure by this case, if it results in changes that benefit other countries too? I think so, yes. Um, and in fact, for all of the criticism you know, of this administration that we're going it alone, I think this is U.S. leadership at its best in many, many, you could argue that in many ways, because what we want fundamentally is markets that are contestable on the same terms that are offered to Chinese companies in the Chinese market and the same terms offered to companies from Europe, Japan, or elsewhere in China's market. That's that's the basis of the global trading system is non-discrimination in global trade. So we spent significant capital um, to get an outcome like this, um, but it really does stand for represent what we stand for, which is, which is as I said, non-discrimination in, in global trade. My theory about it is that the administration felt they could drive a process faster toward a desired outcome without having to consult with other governments if they took this approach. Um, we took it on the chin with tariffs, but the trade-off is that you have, you're in the driver's seat, you have control over the, the outcome. Um, and it, I don't think it should bother anybody. In fact, it was kind of a revelation. I told you I spoke to farmers in Indiana mm-hmm. um, last week. And, and that was one of the things I mentioned, that this would benefit um, growers in other countries the same way it would benefit us if they make if China makes changes to its regulatory system for agriculture products. But that's okay, because we can compete. We can compete on fair terms. And that's, that's what we hope to be an outcome. We don't want China to do something that is discriminatory in our favor um, in this instance, because they could just as well do that for another government in another instance. Um, I, I will say that what impressed me almost as much as the China deal was that there was a trilateral joint statement issued. I don't know if it was the same day or the day before um, by the U.S., European Union and Japan um, regarding China's subsidies to state owned and state directed enterprises. And this is a topic that 
you know, I mentioned in my sort of long opening when you asked me about the concerns with China, this is at the core of, of the concerns is, is China's subsidies and, and how it, how it um, helps state-owned and state-directed enterprises um, succeed at the expense of, of other of companies in other countries. Um, and that's something that the administration has been criticized for not addressing adequately or really at all um, in its phase one deal. Um, so in this case, you had the administration working pretty quietly with the European Commission and with Japan on a document that begins to address the core issues of subsidies to state-owned enterprises and standing shoulder to shoulder with the United States on this. So the U.S. is not shouldering the burden alone on that topic necessarily if they succeed in, in advancing that and socializing that concept with other, other governments in the WTO. Um, so you have, you know, the U.S. deal on the one hand that we spent a lot of capital and, and sort of negotiated unilaterally. But, you know, at the same breath, you, you see that the administration is working with other governments to achieve goals with respect to China. Right. I think I'm really glad you brought that up. I'd intended to, to ask you that the U.S.-EU-Japan trilateral actually issued its statement on January 14th, the day before the phase one deal with China was signed, but the trilateral doesn't get a whole lot of play in the news. It's not at the top of the headlines. It's kind of a quiet sort of effort that's been going on in parallel um, over the last 18 months or so. Um, and I think it's also interesting to note the word China doesn't appear in any of the joint statements no, they've released, right. as I'm sure you've seen. Um, so they're, they're tackling a set of behaviors that certainly apply to China. Um, but I think it's it's interesting to note that that's been going on and maybe starting to make a little headway. But I wonder what is the prognosis for what's agreed to there? Um, the idea seems to be to bring a set of proposals with respect to industrial subsidies to change WTO rules or modify those rules, which would require consensus, of course, of WTO members. So how do you see that playing out or that kind of time frame playing out on this? Yeah, I, I don't really have inside knowledge on it, but I was very struck by the way that the language was laid out. I almost um, almost consider it kind of phase one in building uh, an agreement around these kinds of issues. It, they were they the governments involved build it as core elements um, of a future um, set of commitments, additional commitments on um, on subsidies in the WTO. And the next step, I would imagine, and I think they've said this, is to kind of socialize the concepts with other members of the WTO. But when you look at the way that the language is, is written, I think it's clearly written as, as draft legal language that could form the basis of new commitments. So it seems to me they're actually fairly far along in that process, which isn't to say that it would be easy to then migrate these things into additional commitments in the WTO. I don't think that's happened, you know, that, that these longstanding agreements have had substantial, you know, significant additions to them in, in many years. So it's not a, it's not a small feat um, that we're talking about. It could take some time, but we do have a ministerial, a WTO ministerial coming up in uh, June where trade ministers get together, and that would clearly be an action-forcing event, as we like to say in the trade world, um, for getting some traction and, and moving these kinds of provisions forward. So um, I, I think that seems actually very, very promising. Okay. One more question about the phase one deal here, and I'd like to focus that question on agriculture. So we've heard a lot about China's promises to increase purchases of agricultural goods U.S. agricultural goods up to $40 billion over the next two years. 
but I want to discuss the non-tariff barriers that are addressed um, in this U.S.-China Phase 1 deal. Um, it addresses Chinese regulatory barriers that were problematic for U.S. exports of beef and dairy and other types of agriculture exports. Um, Nebraska's agriculture exports to China in particular have been really inconsistent over the last few years. They actually peaked in 2012, long before this trade war started, and, and individual commodities have kind of spiked and dropped off at various times. I think due at least in part to non-tariff barriers and how China addresses those. So as I understand it, there are changes related to these types of barriers in the deal commitments that China has to take um, that may potentially be more important than the short-term commitment to buy more goods. So how would you assess those two items and assess the significance of the all of the non-tariff barriers um, that are part of this deal? I think it's hugely significant. I, I always joke, maybe unfairly, that it's non-tariff barriers and regulatory issues are sort of the most boring but important part <laughs> of the trade regime these days. I mean, and we get a lot of attention to tariffs because the administration um, deployed them in an, in an unconventional way. But um, in reality, the you know reduction of tariffs are only so good as as being able to get your product approved and on the market, and that requires managing a, a through a thicket of of regulatory requirements here. And I, I think you're right to say that that <clears throat> behind the scenes has been. Um, a really pernicious, you know, problem with respect to securing tr true market access for agricultural products and um, predictability in that market access. So I know that the the growers remain concerned that China, even with this deal, has not formally lifted its retaliatory tariffs on U.S. agriculture exports. Instead, they're going to rely on tariff exemptions to make um, the purchases that they've promised. So there's still some short-term overhang here. But I think the fact that the administration succeeded in one package in getting quite a substantial amount of commitments on the way of, that China regulates agricultural products, I think represents really important long-term, potentially fundamental change. You know, if, if institutionally um, China does things differently, right, with respect to um, with respect to the way that it regulates agricultural products, um, biotech products and other products, I think that that represents a more sustainable um, long-term opportunity for U.S. growers. Um, and the same with the TRQ commitments. I think you mentioned that, that, that there's been a lot of complaint over the last, well, really, I mean, since China entered the WTO, China has been underfilling its, its tariff rate quotas. Um, and if this agreement forces some you know, permanent change in the way that, that China administers those TRQs and allows for um, private buyers in China uh, to make market-based decisions, it's more likely that we would be able to sell more product and, and fill those TRQs. And, and those are very significant um, advances in this agreement, I think. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the tariff rate quota system, just to remind our listeners uh, what a TRQ is, a two tariff, or excuse me, a sort of a two level system where a certain amount of product can come into the country at low or no tariffs. And then once that threshold is reached, any amount over and above that threshold that is imported does face a higher tariff. So the TRQ for corn, wheat and rice, I think, was of interest here because China was not uh, filling that quota and and the U.S. alleged China was not administering that TRQ in a very transparent way and actually won a case at the World Trade Organization about that and and uh, did make an appearance here in this um, 
document as well that China agreed to take specific commitments um, as part of this phase one agreement with respect to how it can better administer that TRQ. Um, Right. So, Andrew, you do a lot of speaking, I know, to groups about trade, including to agriculture producers all over the country. And I know you were very recently in uh, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio. And I'm wondering, are you hearing a difference in the types of questions people are asking about trade now as opposed to a couple of years ago, one or two years ago? Yes. You know, it's you're you're right. I just um, I've been very fortunate to be able to go out and speak um, primarily to agricultural groups. And, you know, I like to speak to students as well. But with the with the agriculture groups in particular, um, I think for many years, I mean, rightly so, understandably so, growers were very focused on on the the issues that affected their business. I mean, that's normal. Um, And now what I see is that they're extremely informed on a wide array, a broader array of of trade policies. They see how um, everything is interconnected and, and, and they're not just more informed, which of course they are. They're more curious actually about our trade history, um, about trade policies that affect manufactured goods, about how negotiations are conducted, about how we make decisions, uh, about who to negotiate with and the types of deals we do. And I think all of that is, is great. I think that that is a, a healthy um, discussion to be having because for too many years we really um, left trade policy discussions to you know a very narrow subset of, of you know policymakers rarely had these kinds of discussions outside of the beltway and, and the more we do that um, the better off everybody is I think there would be much more support um, broadly speaking among the American public if if we had these kinds of discussions and yes absolutely the growers are. Um, interested in in everything that they can learn now about trade policy and, and have wonderful um, insights about it. I if I can share with you one of one of the comments that I that I got on the margins of this this trade talk, it was in Indianapolis. Um, one of the growers came up and said to me, I, this is I, I looked at USMCA. USMCA is is very legalistic. It's very long. The U.S. Um, Canada Mexico agreement, and this deal with China seemed to be very plainly written, very straight, written in a very straightforward way, and in a way that I could read it and understand it. And I think that's a really significant observation. Actually, I thought that was a great observation, and I felt the same way too reading it. I did too. Now that you mentioned that, because um, I have looked at USMCA as well, <laughs> they they do read very differently. Um, both trade agreements. You know, it's interesting to to hear you talk about the the spike in curiosity and interest um, level among the people that you go out and, and speak to in the agriculture groups. And I think the Trade Vistas website that you edit is an absolutely excellent tool for meeting that curiosity, for informing people who are curious about all these different aspects of trade. Now, um, so I want to ask you. In your plans for 2020 for that website, um, is there any trade issue that maybe is not getting much attention right now that you think should be getting more attention that you might even be planning to, to write about on Trade Vistas? Yeah, I mean, thank you for the compliment. I, it's funny, Joe, when we um, started off planning the content for Trade Vistas before there was any content, we drew up a list of, of topics and issues that we thought should be on the site. And this was before the Trump administration came into office. So the list looked very different <laughs> than it did after the president came into office because I never thought I would be writing about 
Section 232 on national security um, and Section 301, the investigatory tool that we're using with China that we hadn't used in, in decades. So there were definitely things that overtook the list <laughs> originally that I had drawn up. Um, but that said, I think beyond the day to day, you know, you have to sort of um, chase the news to some extent because our goal is to provide context for, you know, what's happening um, currently without being sort of newsy in our approach. Uh, but I think there are some very big issues out there that deserve some attention that aren't four square in in trade policy, but I think should be um, informing um, future trade policy. And, and one of those is the nexus between workforce needs of the future um, and where we might be spending more negotiating energy based on the sectors that are are growing, where we are competitive, um, you know, the source of of economic competitiveness and and job growth in um, in cities where that's happening. I think that from a trade policy standpoint, we might pay more attention to those things in 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 determining how we spend our negotiating energy. Um, you know, what would have the most amount of benefit? So I think exploring without advocating, really just exploring. Um, workforce issues and the relationship with trade policy is something that I want to spend more time on. Um, and the other issue is infrastructure. We um, we don't have a lot yet on the site about hard infrastructure. We're about to produce a series in partnership with the Information Technology Industry Foundation, um, sort of a digital trade primer, um, because digital trade is, is becoming obviously um, increasingly, at least the rules around it are becoming increasingly important. We already do have a, a great amount of digital trade. So we want to make sure that that um, people understand sort of the fundamentals about digital trade. But having said that, um, we're going to have a big debate in this country about infrastructure investments and um, the the competition to deepen and, and expand ports and to protect um, maritime straits and and all of these issues are are actually vitally important to global trade flows and I think that we um, would like to write a lot more about that so that we start to generate more of a policy discussion around infrastructure investments and and the future of, of, of trade. Well, we have a lot to look forward to to read on, on the tradevistas.org website this year, which I encourage everyone to check out. Um, last question, Andrea, which I ask every guest on the show, and that is, what have you read lately or what are you reading now about trade, book or article or otherwise, that has been particularly striking to you? So I, you know, I like to joke, you know, you get the, the sort of the Google pop up, all the ads um, mm -hmm. based on your on your searches. Um, because I write so many quirky things on trade vistas, I think anybody looking at my search history would be absolutely perplexed about, <laughs> about what, you know, what kind of person I am and who I am. Um, and I, I draw a lot of my um, a lot of my ideas about what to write about um, by reading non-trade um, publications and um, one of the books that I just read that I thought was going to be fairly non-trade that turned out to be, I think, have, have a strong relationship with, with trade was Prisoner of Geography. Um, I think it's Tim Marshall. I I picked it up in the airport in, in Rome, actually, and I thought it was going to be um, incredibly dry and I would probably get, you know, 10 pages into it on, on the airplane and put it down. Uh, but it's, it's written by, um, guys, a journalist and it's, it's fantastically written and it's really all about how 
countries, um, despite you know all of the modernity, and I just rec- um, mentioned digital trade and, and e-commerce and things like that, we are still making heavy political and security decisions based on geography, the limits of geography, aspirations around geography. And I was fascinated with this. And it obviously has a nexus with trade because, you know, we think about um, all of our historical interactions and the Silk Roads and um, and wars that are, are fought over access to natural resources or ports. And I didn't really stop to think about the fact that those considerations may drive major um, major political decisions today. If we look at, at Russia's in, incursion in, the, in Crimea, um, in part for access to a warm water port, um, which is fascinating. Um, again, Russia's and, and other countries' interests in the Arctic routes um, have a lot to do with with um, with trade. Uh, China's uh, Belt and Road Initiative is being driven um, by commercial interests, and so you know this idea about geography driving. Um, decision making today that will reshape um, political and economic interactions um, as, as being as strong an impulse today as it as it ever was is is kind of a fascinating topic to me. Um, so I recommend this book, Prisoner of Geography. Thank you. We'll we'll definitely put that in the show notes. And I also I really like how you bring in this bigger strategic context and and something so fundamental as geography into this conversation about trade because that's something we really seek to do in the Gator Institute is to broaden the conversation so that we are inclusive of all the elements that, that really impact um, how trade actually happens and, and impacts our own lives. So thanks for bringing that up. Andrea Durkin, thank you so much for this really informative conversation today. We really appreciate you taking the time to do this interview. Oh, thank you so much, Jill. I, I love what the Yider Institute is doing and I love working with you. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of Trade Matters. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to Bryce Duskett, Alex Boychowski, and Brianne Wolf for helping produce this podcast. Please subscribe to Trade Matters on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have ideas or topics you would like to hear about on Trade Matters, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at yeiderinstitute at unl.edu. That's Y-E-U-T-T-E-R institute at unl.edu or follow us on Twitter at UNL underscore Yider. Opinions expressed on trade matters are solely those of the guest or host and not the Yider Institute or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.